use your classes as an opportunity to like window shop different topic areas. Like you're going to get a taste of it through what you're doing in your coursework. And I think you need to ask yourself, what exactly would I use this for? Or, oh, they've described some stuff that I'd be excited to take three or four more classes in this to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, really identify what gets that excitement factor for you higher than not. Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohan, and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hi everyone, and welcome back to After Office Hours. Today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mark Palmieri. Yeah, Dr. Palmieri is a professor of the practice in the Department of BME, as well as an assistant research professor in the Department of Anesthesiology. Yeah, it was really cool, especially because Rowan and I have taken a class with him last semester um, to just sit down and talk about his life and uh, his experiences and how he got to where he is today. Yeah, and I think it's really great for Duke students especially to sort of hear the kinds of uh, perspectives that he has, because he's been at Duke for so long. I mean, he did his undergrad here, um, his MD PhD here as well, and he's been here ever since. And um, I think it's also really cool that he has, um, he's involved with a number of different things on campus. You know, he, he has um, his own lab, as well as sort of commitments in teaching design. And he's actually been involved with um, spearheading and developing a number of courses for um, more senior BME students. So it's really, really cool to see what he's done. Absolutely, I hope you guys enjoy. Okay, Dr. Palmieri, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Before we really dive into what you have going on today and all the work you do, let's kind of start at the beginning. Um, I'd love to hear about where you're from and what it was like growing up for you. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to discuss these things with you. And yeah, I'm originally from New York, Long Island, um, a town called Dix Hills, which is about halfway out on Long Island and um, went to a high school there, High School Hills East, which actually a lot of Duke students through the years have come through. And, um, and uh, eventually stayed there the whole time growing up until I came here actually to Duke when I was uh, an undergraduate back in 96. But my time in New York was pretty great. Um, it actually established the foundations for me probably wanting to become an engineer. Um, so my both of my parents were public school teachers. And so my home was effectively like a classroom all the time to some degree, but not like the formal classroom that you would kind of think of, of kind of, uh, you know, someone lecturing to you and, and teaching you. But Everything that was going on was always uh, kind of an opportunity to learn and a lesson. And um, I was also probably a bit on the hyperactive side as a child. So my parents had me very involved with sports and um, activities with friends in the neighborhood. And when, when they couldn't occupy me with kind of formal activities, um, my dad was really big into kind of 
doing a lot of projects around the house and fixing things. And I became kind of his shadow for a lot of that and got really into tinkering with things and doing a lot of just hands-on exploring of stuff. And, um, and that kind of just got the bug in me for how I realized I learned stuff. Suddenly, suddenly things like, oh, the lessons you learn in physics became uh-huh. intuitive because of what you did with erector sets and, and you know, putting together uh, kind of things in the basement to fix something. So sure. it's a fun childhood. And, um, and yeah, it kind of was a springboard for me wanting to kind of to pursue engineering both in my studies and then eventually as my kind of profession. Very cool. I think it was incredibly unique that uh, both of your parents are teachers. I know that teaching plays a really large role in what you do on campus today, and especially with senior design and other programs like Design Fellows. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about these engineering experiences that you had and what led you to pursue engineering specifically at Duke as an undergrad? Yeah, um, so schooling for me was um, was interesting because I never actually knew what engineering was until I actually applied to college. I think that's um, the case with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I had no, it never even was something that was brought up by teachers I had in school or guidance counselors or anything like that. Um, you know, I kind of naturally migrated to it because I think like a lot of people who study engineering, they look for something that combines a bunch of different topics that they do enjoy in school. And so sure. for me, I really enjoyed physics. I enjoyed math. Um, and I really had um, a bias towards mechanical and electronic things. And so I was really looking for you know, a way that I could combine all of those things in um, in some sort of kind of pursuit of a major in college. And as I, I did research on, you know, what I might want to do uh, in a college experience, engineering kept resonating as like the thing that each of the schools I was applying to kind of offered. And, um, and so it seemed like a natural marriage where, okay, well, the prerequisites to earn a degree in this area would require me to kind of take this potpourri. And effectively, it was a cop-out to not have to decide on one of the other disciplines. Um, and so I was completely, though, unaware of what biomedical engineering was. As an undergraduate, I actually majored in biomedical and electrical. Again, I had a, a pretty strong electrical bias. Um and it turned out to be kind of a, a great fit. I, I'm not sure what could have been done though throughout my schooling pre-college to actually better sell what engineering is. I mean, I probably still finished the degree and was scratching my head a little bit about uh-huh. exactly what is this, um, but it worked out okay. Yeah, that's really cool. So getting toward more towards your undergrad, what brought you to Duke as an undergrad? And I'd love to hear more about what Duke was like um, back, back in the day. Oh boy. So yeah, I came to Duke in um, 1996. And why Duke is a great question because I don't actually have a stellar, exciting answer. Um, I did not apply to many colleges. Um, I only applied to colleges that had uh, what appeared to be good engineering programs. Um, And then Duke had an interesting, you know, this biomedical engineering program on paper looked pretty interesting, but I wasn't exactly sure what it was. 
Mm. Um, I actually, when I was growing up, was not a Duke fan in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I, for some reason, did not gravitate towards Duke in the headlines for basketball popularity or anything like that. Um, so I had, and I've had no family that had gone to Duke. Um, every, all of my family was very New York City centric. Um, but something appealed to kind of the, the nature of kind of what BME on paper looked like at Duke, the ability to double major looked kind of attractive um, because it, at the time it was um, something that they definitely facilitated for, for people to pursue. Um, and it also got me a little bit more south of where I geographically was from. Almost all the other schools I applied to are up in the Northeast. Yeah. And um, something appealed to me about trying to also just kind of spread my wings a little bit in terms of a different geography and things that would be, you know, fun to explore in the sort. Now, in terms of how Duke was different compared to now, <laughs> I mean, we could occupy a whole lot of time with that. Um, for perspective, um, so as a freshman, I lived in Blackwell. Uh, Blackwell was only open for its second year wow. um, when oh I was God. a freshman there. Um, things like course registration were done over the phone. Um, you needed a touchstone phone to register and course catalogs were in like physical books. Um, and, you know, it was the first time I had real internet connectivity was when I came to college. I'd never had an email address before. Wow. Um, and it was just a, a very different time. Like it was a, a novelty to have like a cordless phone, not a cellular phone, but just a cordless phone. Um, which we did not have uh, in my any of my undergraduate time. We had a hundred foot long telephone cable that we used to stretch across the room and, and things like that. Um, let's see, I didn't have a car in college and actually I used my bike to get around everywhere. I think in my entire undergraduate career, I rode the buses maybe less than 10 times. Um, I was crazy. a diehard bike commuter and that actually kicked off me getting into mountain biking, which now I kind of pursue as a passion with endurance racing and, and all that sort of stuff. And that really came from uh, breaks that we would have where I wouldn't uh, go home. And I'd start exploring trails that were in the area and riding in the Duke Forest and going down to what now is Carolina North to ride. And it, it became a fun, fun thing. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, the first weekend after moving, uh, we got hit by a huge hurricane. So everyone bonded over playing in the mud. And also we didn't have a severe weather policy then. And the storms of my freshman year, I think kicked off Duke having a formal severe weather policy because so many trees were down across campus and at faculty homes and the sort that everyone struggled to, to be able to get in. But, um, but no, everything, you know, some things are a complete snapshot of what they were then. I had most of my classes in Hudson. Nice. Um, and cool. so maybe the classrooms have gotten a little bit of a facelift, but I can still kind of put myself back in kind of what the scenarios looked like then. Um, and yeah, it was great. It was a fun time. I, uh, I actually lived in a residential block with uh, people I was randomly put together with freshman year for all four years. And cool. um, wasn't involved with any of the Greek life or selective living, just kind of had that residential block. And, and a lot of those friends from freshman year, I, I continue to stay in touch with in the sort today. That's awesome. Wow. 
that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we we spoke to Dr. Enriquez um, in the past, and it's really cool to hear his perspective on how Duke was several years before you were there, and then now because he was saying you got he waited in line like in a physical line to do course registration, and then you were on the phone, and yep. now we, we are. Were, I fully think we online. were one of the first years that they switched over to using phones. Um, and then there was like this new thing called ACEs that was coming about, which was going to be like the online way to start doing stuff. And, um, you know, the precursor was, to Duke Hub. Yeah. And it's it, the funny thing is, um, you know, with, with slower internet connectivity for registration, when people started to do it through computers, people would, you know, flock at early morning hours to like on campus computer cluster rooms where, you know, you could get online a little more reliably. Um, but it was totally different. Like to do assignments, I had to usually go to engineering buildings to do them because the programs we would use weren't amenable to being installed on personal computers. Laptops were not a thing then. So big CRT monitors and, and things like that. And actually my computer in college broke early on and I wound up really getting into um, programming because I wound up installing Linux at a very early age. And so I was one of those weirdos who was running like a Linux computer back in their dorm room, uh, which actually saved me a lot of time to, to do some of my work because most of the software they required was actually very Linux based. Um, a funny, funny twist of things. When I came to Duke, I was kind of EGR 103 existed then as EGR 53. And um, I was actually placed, they kind of tiered people in different skill sets at that time, the smaller sections. And I was actually put in the remedial programming class. They didn't call it the remedial one, but it was for people who didn't have <laughs> any programming background. Um, and that class probably was the most interesting class I took freshman year, first semester. I had a great professor, uh, Laura Bottomley, who, who turns out is like a stellar instructor in the area. And um, uh, at the time we learned C as our programming language and, and her ability to teach the fundamentals of programming, I actually think was one of the strongest foundations I could establish for what went on to be, you know, one of the things that is completely interwoven into all the work I do today. Um, and wow. that, that class got me so excited. I, I, at the time had like a TI 92 calculator and over winter break, like randomly programmed a Tetris game in basic because I was just like, oh, this is so cool. You could do this. Um, wow. and then of course, you know, ironically now I started in that kind of position freshman year. And then, you know, as, as faculty, I've gone on to like develop a software development course within the BME curriculum. So for, for yeah. anyone listening to this, who's like, oh, I'm starting behind you know, a little bit uh, slower than my classmates in some placement that really has nothing to do with kind of the ceiling you could do. And if anything, I actually think it benefited me because things were presented in a much kind of slower and more fundamental way and really established better practices rather than trying to cram in like as much advanced content as possible. And that's probably why I then wound up being such a Linux uh, fan early on in my, my engineering career. Wow, there's so much that I was interested in there. Um, I think it's really unique how things that you experienced as an undergrad have directly influenced your life as a faculty member. And it was also funny to know how your mountain biking passion started because I know you mentioned that a lot during our class. Yeah, that was, a you know, getting around campus. Um, Durham at the time was not nearly as spread out and, and thriving as it is now. 
Um, downtown Durham was not a place that you frequented for any sort of social activity. It was actually, you know, rather empty. And so if you were going to explore anything beyond the campus environment, you either were typically going down the Chapel Hill. Um, and since I didn't have a car, that wasn't, you know, on the table as, as easily. And so I became much more outdoor centric with kind of keeping myself busy. Um, and yeah, getting around, you know, going between East and West and Central and, and all that. And I lived in Edens at some point, like everything was always just going to be too far to walk. And so I just started biking everywhere and, uh, and it was great. Yeah, I think that's still incredibly relevant today. I think many students have the same sorts of realizations during college. Um, and, you know, in addition to that, what else were you involved with as an undergrad on campus, whether that be um, outside of academics in terms of research or just fun things that you like to do? Yeah, so I probably wasted a lot of time by like official categorization, which was and by wasted, I mean, it, it was time spent figuring out learning the ropes of, of just kind of living on your own without the structure of kind of uh, parental guidance in the sort. And um, that was actually probably some of the best parts of what I got out of college, probably not what you want to hear with respect to where your tuition dollars go. Um, no, but I, I had a very weird and non-traditional way of managing my time. So I very strongly um, enjoyed keeping my weekends free for fun stuff. And so I was the type to try to knock out all of my kind of work during the weekday evenings so that I could actually have my weekends free. Um, and I think that's not exactly the most common way, uh, way that people approach stuff. Uh, in doing that, I then had a lot of time to kind of do whatever I wanted to. Um, research was a big part of what I did academically outside of formal classwork. And, you know, I think that in general, I think Duke's best value gain isn't what you formally get is what's required in the classroom, but it's, it's what gets you excited about pursuing things that then the resources of Duke provide you the opportunity to pursue. And for me, that was building upon, um, research interests. So actually dating back into earlier in high school in the sort. Um, I, I was very involved with summer research programs. I thought it was interesting. Okay. I, I lived near Cold Spring Harbor Labs. Wow. Okay. I spent the summer at Cold Spring Harbor doing research. Um, I spent a summer working at a, a high energy physics lab at Brookhaven National Labs on oh, Long cool. Island um, in collaboration with Stony Brook. And I spent some uh, summers working with a um, organic chemistry lab at uh, Stony Brook doing some work in um, cancer therapeutics. And um, that was all great. Um, but none of I knew I enjoyed research. Mm -hmm. I also knew that those research experiences weren't giving me the weren't culminating in something that got me terribly excited. And sure. I, I was using college as an opportunity to figure out, okay, if I if I'm making this investment in my education, I need to figure out what am I going to enjoy doing when I'm done with all of this. Right. Um, and so I, I started dabbling a little bit more just on my own with kind of expanding my skill set, and then pursued some electrical engineering research opportunities. Um, one of my summers up at Princeton and, and got really into kind of the 
a device fabrication side of things there. And then when I came back to Duke my junior year, the weirdest thing happened. My entire schedule got effectively erased. Um, so a bunch of my classes just got canceled and I wound up getting reassigned to different classes that were totally out of sequence from what I was planning to do. And um, I, I wound up getting an opportunity to work. Um, I had both Kathy and Roger Nightingale in one semester as, as professors. <laughs> um, Roger was teaching at the time BME 110, which was the biomechanics course. And Kathy was teaching a BME 350, the equivalent now of like BME 354. Sure. Um, it wasn't called that at the time, it was BME 154. Um, and so I wound up taking my first BME classes. Um, I was actually a junior, I'd never taken a BME class. I'd taken all ECE classes. Um, and um, I wound up getting an opportunity to work um, in the ultrasound research space and suddenly had this really cool convergence of like programming opportunity, really cool physics problems with the acoustics going on. And then the thing that had been missing from all my previous research experiences was the application to medical problems. Um, and, and that made a big deal to me. And, and it wasn't something I actually had actively sought out and thought, oh, this is what I need to look for. But it was just kind of naturally presented itself. It's like, ah, medical imaging is kind of neat. And like it solves right. a problem that to me um, just seems you know, ripe for people to spend more time and attention focusing on. And once I got involved with that, then a lot of my free time actually just naturally went towards working on those problems. And, and for me, it was a bit of a spark because suddenly it was one of those opportunities where I was like, I was looking to carve out more time to work on projects because not because I thought it would look good on a resume or a future application, but because it really bugged me that I couldn't, you know, get to a point of closure on them. Right. And that to me is something I've kept to this day is like, I hope that all the work projects I work on have some aspect of like excitement and get up and go each day to kind of pursue them. And instead of feeling like something being done out of obligation. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very clear that research was a clear passion of yours as you progressed through your undergrad. When you were entering your the middle of your senior year, the end of your senior year, what was going through your mind about plans for the future? Like, did you ever see yourself becoming a professor at Duke? Um, yeah, so this is kind of like how I went into college is I didn't have this grand plan. Um, and it's very, for people who know me, you would think I was probably meticulously planning this out for years. Um, and that did not happen. Um, so taking a, a little bit of a step back earlier from that senior year, probably going into my summer between junior and senior year was a big decision to make about like, what was I doing post Duke? And, you know, I was, I was very all in on the engineering side of stuff, but I was also very much um, focused on the medical application. And so the question became like, how do I authentically know the problems to solve in the medical space? Mm. And so mm. that's where the medical school, you know, arm of things started to rear its head. And I was mm. very interested in like the Duke medical curriculum because it's very research centric. Um, it's a little bit shorter because they build in research time. And so I was like, well, 
you know, when people go to learn foreign languages, they go to countries overseas and immerse themselves in those cultures to not just learn the ins and outs of the language, but also all those nuances and the realities of kind of how communication is done in, in the true native setting. And I was like, you know what, if I'm wanting to do a career in imaging, I need to see both authentically how imaging is currently used, where it could be used, and why is it maybe being used in certain ways when it could be done more efficiently or better. And so uh, that junior summer, I was, um, again, pursuing more research experiences, but I started dabbling in like, I should probably take the MCAT to leave that door open. And um, I had no idea what the MCAT was in terms of the realities of it. I actually studied just from a review book. I wound up taking the exam thinking it was like a three to four hour exam. And <laughs> I found out it's like an eight plus hour exam at the time. I, I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, and I thought I had totally blown the opportunity. I mean, uh, I, I went through the process um, and then kind of in that fall, uh, you know, thankfully, Kind of the stars aligned in a certain way that I was like, you know, I should throw my hat in the ring. So I actually applied to graduate schools only and dual degree programs. And I didn't apply to any MD only programs because I knew I didn't want to be a practicing 100% clinician. I really was research focused, but wanted to have that medical expertise. And, um, and then things worked out well that um, an opportunity to, to be a student in the Duke uh, MSTP uh, came my way. And it was a kind of a perfect marriage of opportunity because I had the opportunity to pursue the medical training. Um, but also very exciting at the time is the project I had been working on as an undergraduate was um, focusing on kind of a novel technique that we were calling acoustic radiation force impulse imaging or ARFI imaging. Uh, actually, at the time, it, it wasn't called that. It was called remote palpation. But we were doing this neat technique where we we're using ultrasound to kind of push on tissue and characterize its um, mechanical properties. And this was a very rare opportunity to take a technology that was from, you know, conceived really as an idea and try to see it through. And so staying at Duke to kind of be able to pursue medical studies in addition to graduate studies and take what had been a project I had started on as an undergraduate and see it through to some form of completion was super unique and novel. And I was very fortunate to be able to do that. And, you know, over then the next few years through my graduate work and finishing up medical school, that undergraduate, what now is like a Pratt Research Fellow program that didn't exist at the time. But what was my project for that turned into a completely commercialized technology. Wow. And, you know, I think some people aspire for decades of their career to see something <laughs> go from idea to like actually get out into practice. Right. And, and I actually think my medical training helped focus um, the application of the novel technology into something that was, you know, more amenable to be commercially deployed. So I was very fortunate to be able to, to latch onto a project that had that opportunity available. Wow. I think it was not only cool that you had that opportunity, but that you really saw it and took advantage of it and decided to sort of pursue the next stage of your life with that in mind. Uh, and um, from where I sit, at least, it also seems really unique uh, especially at that time, to know uh, that you didn't want to be a practicing physician 
uh, when applying to MD PhD programs and submitting those. Yeah, um, and it's that's a rare a rare thing also. Um, and I'm not saying that people. I don't think people should have that clarity at that stage. I actually think it's great to go into things where you have lots of potential trajectories. Um, I had just, I think through my years of doing research up until that point had already started to refine kind of what that direction looked like. And, and Duke was great to continue kind of my studies and pursuits in that regard. It also seems like a rarity to have pursued an MD PhD where your PhD was in an engineering field um, and in BME in particular, um, it doesn't seem like a well-trodden path, especially at the time. How did you navigate that sort of opportunity? Yeah, so BME programs on the whole were not as ubiquitously available at, at, as many institutions. So part of it was just that. There weren't many BME programs that were offering stuff. And, um, you know, back in the late 90s and early 2000s, the Coulter Foundation did a lot of investment nationally in starting biomedical engineering programs at different engineering schools. Um, and, and that's why now you have much more of a, a, a choosing of programs you'd be able to go to. At the time, there were fewer programs available. And also the nature of BME programs was changing. So for example, when I was an undergraduate, you're not having uh, course offerings in tissue engineering and biomaterials and gene editing and CRISPR technologies and things like that. Like that was not what Duke BME at all looked like. Duke BME historically had foundations in things like ultrasound imaging, right. um, a lot of bioelectricity, um, biomechanics, specifically on kind of the macro scale with um, a lot of the injury biomechanics that was being done here. Mm -hmm. And and then the whole field shifted uh, tremendously. And, and now there's a much greater footprint of wet bench work um, being done. Um, but at the time, you know, if, if you wanted to do a PhD in biomedical engineering, and as you know, my pursuits were had heavy foundations in programming and kind of an electrical engineering component. And for me also kind of continuum mechanic-y mechanics related content. If you didn't have an undergraduate background in an engineering discipline, there was going to be a high activation energy of coursework that you'd have to take if you were trying to pursue BME as, as your PhD discipline. And for people doing dual degree programs, the prospect of adding on appreciable amounts of coursework on top of a already extended timeline to, to earn your degrees wasn't necessarily the most exciting uh, thing to engage in. Um, the, the other aspect of it is, um, as you know, it's, you know, at Duke, there's a lot of faculty secondary faculty who might have primary appointments in other departments that can let you get an engineering um, arm to your research, but also have kind of a primary thrust in a different discipline. And so there, there were definitely folks who were working in those areas, um, but maybe not, you know, getting labeled as primary engineers. Gotcha. Um, but I think that's changed a lot. I think now that the engineering discipline is more diversified in kind of the different arms of research that go on. And also over the past few years, and this will explode moving forward, 
as things like artificial intelligence take off, big data, all this sort of stuff, I think you're going to have a melding of engineering, um, research disciplines, computer science, more math, and other research disciplines that haven't traditionally dominated physician scientist training will suddenly sure. become much more fair game. Right. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Um, like I said, we've talked to uh, other professors who have also been at Duke for some time and hearing the evolution and development of the department going from a more electrical engineering base into a more cellular and, and wet lab to now um, there's a, like a big influx of big data faculty in the BME department, um, which is really cool as well. So going through your, your MD and your PhD, as you were finishing that up, um, obviously now you are, you are a professor at Duke, you're a part of the faculty. What has kept you at Duke for so long? Um, and what, what was that draw that pulled you in to become a faculty at Duke? Yeah, so let me start by clarifying what my actual position at Duke is, because sure. it's, not a, um, it's not a position that exists everywhere, and it's not also probably the most common thing people associate with being a faculty member. So, you know, the most traditional path people would take is, is to be a, pursuing a tenured position uh, on, a, on a faculty. And I actually have taken a very different route. So I complete my dual degree training. And again, because of the, I, I did not have a, an interest in pursuing a residency and, and doing graduate, graduate medical training. I, I did not find the, um, that daily get up and be excited to do things at the prospect of, of providing primary patient care. Um, but I really was was motivated by providing novel technologies for doctors to use. And again, the the momentum of the project I had been working on was this very unique and rare opportunity to work on commercializing a technology that we had actually really truly developed in-house. And there were very few labs in the world that were doing this. So this wasn't the like, oh, there's hundreds of other people that'll push this forward. It was like, ah. So right when I graduated was when we were actually working with uh, one of our ultrasound manufacturing collaborators to actually translate this stuff onto their platform. So to like leave that opportunity uh, would have been a bit heartbreaking. Um, now that being said, you know, you'll hear a lot of conventional wisdom is you shouldn't stay where you've trained because it's hard to kind of establish your independence and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to, that's not going to dictate what I do here. Um, so I wound up joining uh, the faculty as a research professor, which is an ambiguously defined position. But um, part of the reason I um, pursued it is that the work environment that I specifically work in with the collaborators I have. So I, I still work very closely with um, Kathy Nightingale. I've worked very closely with Greg Trahey is um, it's an extremely collegial environment and it's a it's really just a group effort to get stuff done and and not at all kind of the formal hierarchy that that some uh, departments and groups could have so coming in as a research professor afforded me the opportunity to uh, apply for some funding on my own um, but really instead of being a faculty member where I'm trying to start a lab and recruit students and become much more of like a grant writer and a captain of a ship, so to speak, to kind of get other trainees up and running, uh, I can keep my, I can still be kind of deep in the weeds myself and, and still be doing a lot of the active work, which, which to me was again, the most exciting part. 
Um, as I was doing that kind of role, the um, the technology we were working on was successfully commercialized. It became very clinically popular. Wow. Um, I became uh, involved with a lot of the international efforts to kind of get it as a standardized technology for kind of clinical use in certain regard. I was actively up in the hospital running clinical studies, uh, imaging patients with it to see how it would perform. And then at the same time, I started um, getting drawn to teaching. Um, so again, I, I started in a faculty position that by definition requires no teaching. Um, it's mm -hmm. a research position. And there was a need at the time to teach uh, BME 153, which is no longer offered, um, but it's the equivalent of ECE 110, but it was um, offered just for BMEs. Um, and so I offered uh, that course and I got really into kind of what I was doing with that. It was just really exciting to teach an introductory circuit analysis class. I really enjoyed kind of watching kind of those little epiphanies and light bulbs go off for students like they did for me in EGR 53 with, with that kind of programming introduction. Um, and uh, then it just became like, oh, well, he seems to do okay at teaching and he seems to <laughs> like it. So let's do this and continue this uh, on a little more. So I kept teaching that. I had the unique opportunity to teach then the same bolus of students in um, e, uh, BME 154. So I had this cohort of students going from one semester to the other. It was a very unique opportunity for me to be able to kind of see everyone's growth in this kind of uh, sequence of disciplines uh, in the electronic space. And it just became a good kind of hook for me. Um, if I were ever to have given up teaching, it was probably one semester where I had to teach 110 students in BME 354. <laughs> oh my God. Um, when uh, I filled up both sides of the CMOS lecture hall. That kind of pushed me to my limit, but it also showed me, I think, that, you know, if I could deal with all that administrative headache and the, the scale of that, um, it must be something I actually really enjoy having as part of my kind of professional life. And then I pivoted to um, developing some courses like the software development course, which is BME 547. Mm -hmm. That course was purely conceived from all of my research work that involved translating things to kind of commercial viability and realizing that our student base um, didn't have these skills going into kind of jobs. Right. And um, so it was a class completely, it wasn't one of these, you know, theoretically we should have a class on the books that did this, or we need to match what other institutions offer. This was totally like our students need this. We get feedback that they would have, you know, benefited from being able to hit the ground running in these positions they're pursuing. And then a class like 547 was developed purely based on everything that I personally do, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I was like, this should be what people are learning. 100%. Yeah. No, that's that's really cool. It's definitely unique to see a professor who's both so involved and passionate about their research, but also takes such a um, hands-on role in, in their teaching as well. How do these things kind of interact in your like day-to-day -day, um, life? And then also, how do they kind of influence and pl play off of each other, your role as a teacher and as a researcher? Yeah, you know, it's changed a lot over the years. 
Um, so early on, I would say they they were, they were very strongly siloed into their distinct categories. There was kind of like my research efforts that were going on and my teaching efforts. Um, but what happened was uh, kind of a recognition of what, what were people actually getting from the classroom environment and how could that translate to other things that they were pursuing in their engineering lives. So for example, if you were taking the content of a circuits class or an instrumentation class, were people making the connections between the didactic content they formally were presented with in the classroom or lab setting? And could they identify how that they already knew things to then apply them in a research or independent project setting? And sometimes mm -hmm. that connection was a little bit strained. And that's, I think, because of the pressures and the stresses of, of what students feel in the classroom is you can sometimes put up your blinders and say, oh, I learned all of that. And if I tell you, oh, you learned this in a class, you remember that. But if I ask you the same thing in a different setting, that connection might not be there. Um, and I wanted to make sure that the courses that I was teaching, there is a lot of peppered in anecdotes of how this actually can get used elsewhere or downstream, sure. how might you use this? And, um, you know, a classic example of this uh, that I, I saw year after year was kind of why people were learning Fourier transforms. So like what <laughs> currently is like, you know, a BME 271 content is, you know, people could go through the mechanics of here's how you do a Fourier transform pair and, and and be able to get analytic answers from them and maybe know how to numerically solve things in Python or MATLAB to do it. But then if I asked a, a question in a design course about you know, how you would design or why you would design a filter a certain way to work with the biosignal, the intuition of why you know, a Fourier transform helps you figure out how you could look at spectral content and emphasize parts or reject parts wasn't always there. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not the fault of anyone who's been teaching all these other classes, but it's more <clears throat> just an opportunity that, okay, I wanna make sure our education isn't just the nuts and bolts of how you do some of these things, but also that you see that translation. And I really think that goes back to what you asked earlier about kind of my childhood and how I got into all this stuff to begin with was, you know, when you're a kid, playing with things, you're learning through trial and error and experience. And at no point am I first learning something in a book and then trying to apply it, right? right. You go to try to do something and then typically you motivate yourself to go figure out the how and the why, like why right. did it work that way? And that's how I like to kind of go about my teaching now. And that's been an evolution. And sometimes that is not well received. Um, because I think at this stage of the game, you're used to 10, 15 plus years of education in a, in a different, you know, style. And a lot of my teaching now is, is based on you being able to be rewarded for that trial and error process and also getting comfortable with failing. And that's what research is also. So the two mm -hmm. then start to more naturally meld is you know, in research, it, there's no formula from day one you can apply to guarantee that you're going to have a successful outcome. And as engineers, I think you need to be comfortable with failing. You need to try, fail often, fail quickly, learn from it, and pivot towards what you've learned from that to kind of get to the success. And the same thing applies in research. It's, it's propose a hypothesis, 
It's uh, test something, it's figure out what you're not understanding correctly and refine that hypothesis. Um, and I think that overall, it's very challenging for a lot of students to get comfortable with failure. They don't right. want people to see kind of what they perceive as weakness. Whereas for me, I would hope that um, through at least the courses or the research experiences people have with me, they realize that failure is, is the, the first catalyst you have to learning and understanding. To anyone listening, Rohan and I have both uh, taken Dr. Palmieri's design course, and that is, he's not just talking to talk, that is definitely how um, he teaches his course. And I definitely have learned a lot from that style. And I think it's going to be more applicable as I kind of leave the undergraduate setting as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I think COVID's made that harder um, because we didn't get to do as much in person. You know, failure is best uh, harnessed when you can help people embrace what they can learn from it. Sure. Failure when you're working in the lab on your own because not many people can be there concurrently with you can become frustrating. Um, and, and that's something I'm trying to also evolve with is, uh, is to figure out, you know, how can this be done at scale and be done also with kind of not an overwhelming amount of overhead from instructors and TAs to help cultivate that kind of embrace of, of that learning process and that style. Okay, so you've spoken a lot about failure and its importance and how it is really a big drive to to learning. What do you think has been your biggest failure in your career so far and how have you come back and learned from it? So the biggest failure in my career. Um, big question. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a it's a great question because I, I actually think it's always good for personal growth to reflect on how things have gone and to not just bury them and you know be like we'll just forget that happened and, and just hope it doesn't happen again in the future um you know i think some of my biggest failures have come from me being a little bit too rigid in my mentoring style with some mm -hmm. students and probably from a duke specific standpoint probably some of my independent study students um, and, you know, with a long leash that you give someone to be able to explore the landscape on their own, um, without enough guidance or feedback, that person can get a little bit lost. Um, and I would say that I've, I've really had a few students where I've regretted not being able to maybe intervene sooner or provide a little bit more structured environment for their learning. Mm -hmm. And that's probably come, you know, at a bit of, of lackluster return on the time they invested into some of those types of projects. Sure. Um, that That's one in the same with a, a little bit of a failure to not say no more readily earlier in <laughs> my career. Okay. Um, no one likes to be the no person. <laughs> and I still don't like to be so the true. no person, right? When people ask you, can you do this? Should you do this? Um, you feel like if you don't say yes, you're conceding, oh, I don't have enough bandwidth or capacity to do that, or I'm not excited enough about it, or some reason to rationalize why you must say yes to stuff. And um, for me, I think that I've learned from some of those experiences that I think did not go as well as they should have with, with some of my mentoring um, is that quality is better than quantity. Mm -hmm. And I continually have to revisit this um, as we grow some of our educational programs. So a few years ago, we started the BME Design Fellows Program. 
that um, kind of came from that same motivation for why I developed the software course. Again, give students a more extended experience in design and prototyping skills and, and set them up to kind of have a, a different trajectory than other students who might be more research centric in the sort. And that, that program started small. Um, quality control was high because there was a lot of feedback early on to learn from that. And as we've tried to offer the program to more and more students, there's just a lot of bottlenecks that we hit in terms of time and resources. And of course, COVID's mm -hmm. made it even harder to do that recently. Um, and so I think it's a continual process of learning. I, I embraced soliciting student feedback um, to, to make sure I learn from that. Uh, I'm definitely one of those people in the population that can get 99% comments positive, but I'll perseverate on the 1% that were a little biting and directed and, and sure. harsh. Um, but I, I think that, you know, for myself, just like I will tell students, identifying, embracing and learning from failure, while it might not be pleasant at the time is, is part of the ways to improve and, and better oneself. I think you gave a really great answer to a tough question on the spot. So I've been definitely impressed. Yeah, I try. <laughs> so transitioning a little bit to your research, if you were on morning NPR radio, and uh, someone asked you to describe your research to the general public, you know, its purpose and its impact, what would you say in the moment? Okay, well, I, I divide it into two categories is what I have been researching and what I'm moving towards researching. So I'll start with the first category of what I've been doing. So I, I paint the landscape of you going to see your doctor and, and maybe this isn't as true as it used to be now with computers being, you know, ubiquitously present in clinical settings. But typically when you used to go to your doctor, they would actually talk with you and look at you. And then if you describe something that was bothering you, the next thing they'd wanna do is, is palpate something. So I've got a sore throat, well, let me feel your neck. Um, I've got a, an injury on my elbow, let me feel that. Mm -hmm. um, palpation and, and kind of touching human tissue gives doctors a lot of information. It's the equivalent of kind of a picture's worth a thousand words. You know, a doctor's touch could be worth a thousand words of things that you can't adequately describe to them. Um, the problem is palpation, of course, is, is limited to surface anatomy um, in the clinical setting. And so, you know, the work that we were doing and what I mentioned, ARFI imaging and what, what also evolved into shear wave-based imaging was could we come up with a non-invasive way to extend the information gathering of what a doctor gets from surface palpation to deeper tissues? Um, and so acoustic radiation for us, which, which I alluded to before, is, is really taking ultrasonic sound waves mm -hmm. and using them to, to do that push and indentation of the tissue that you would do with your finger but do it at depth. And it, it can range from you know, one to maybe seven centimeters in depth. And then we actually use the ultrasound technology to see how the tissue responds to that push. And just like how you could press on like a lymph node in your neck and say, oh, this is harder than the adjacent tissue, but it's about this big. And if I push on it, it can kind of move around a little bit and distill information there. We provide that equivalent type of, of mechanical material property information through then an ultrasound image and some quantitative mm. metrics. And we've been fortunate to apply that to then look at diagnostic procedures that typically have been more invasive. Uh, a big one that we've applied that to is looking at liver fibrosis. So um, 
when people have liver injury due to alcohol consumption or metabolic disease or viral hepatitis, um, the, the gold standard way to look at the health of the liver is to actually do a needle biopsy and take out some of the liver tissue and look at it. Mm -hmm. Well, the process of injury and fibrosis and scarring of the, litter, uh, of the liver is one of its stiffening. Um, and so one of our biggest uh, clinical opportunities we directed our attention to is actually using this kind of ultrasonic palpation technique to characterize how stiff the liver was. And we've actually, that was the first kind of commercial application of the technology. It became very popular in Asia and Europe at first, and then here in the US. Um, and in some countries now, it's actually the recommended way to go about screening the liver instead of doing a needle biopsy. Wow. Um, and so, you know, we're applying that to other things. We're looking at using this for cancer detection. Again, palpation is one of the biggest ways people are done that. This could be for a woman performing a, a breast self-exam. It could be a digital rectal exam to look at the prostate. Um, there's all sorts of ways that prostate is used for diagnostic screening. And we're looking at being able to expand that with the technology. Um, and then kind of some of our latest generation work is looking at higher order ways of characterizing tissue. So looking at skeletal muscle or looking at skin um, and other things like that, that have a little more complexity in the reconstruction, um, but are, are viable targets for us. Quickly for the new te technologies we're going to, um, I've been very interested for years in uh, combining ultrasound with other imaging modalities. So mm -hmm. ultrasound is not the prettiest of pictures. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that you don't have to convince many people who've looked at, at the suite of you know, MRI or CT versus ultrasound. I've been drawn to ultrasound because it's really the only real-time imaging metric you could do, and it combines functional imaging with anatomic. That being said, I think it's great to have ways of actually combining ultrasound with CT or MR. And I've been also working a lot with a company called Kitware that's in the area at techniques for multimodal image reconstruction. And that has, has involved coming up with ways of registering uh, 3D imaging volumes and segmenting common structures. And it's naturally pivoted towards also um, some deep learning applications now. Um, so my two Ooh, current wow. graduate students that I have are, are much more into the deep learning space. Um, and we're applying some of that latest technology to coming up with ways of making ultrasound look better, um, especially as point of care ultrasound is becoming very popular. So ultrasound scanners used to be, you know, $100,000 refrigerator size things that you wheeled into rooms. And now they can be things that you carry in your pocket and are battery powered. Right. So we've, we've moved a little bit more towards using deep learning to kind of make ultrasound better. Um, deep learning to uh, combining ultrasound with other imaging modalities. And then for these more challenging problems in the tissue elasticity play space, using deep learning to help us with some of that algorithmic complexity. Um, so we, we've, we've, we're branching into that space. It seems to be kind of the catch-all of like, if you're going to be relevant now, you've got to do something right. in deep learning. Um, I'm also a strong yeah. skeptic of, of deep learning being a solution to all problems, but it does have its role. And so we're also trying to really do our due diligence to come up with confidence me metrics and quality metrics that show when can we trust what deep learning does in this imaging space. Sure. 
Wow. Okay. That's, that's really cool. Um, <laughs> we could definitely have a whole podcast just asking you more questions on that. But um, I wanted to ask, this is something I actually have been thinking about before this podcast as well. So Rowan and I are in your design class and you seem to know like everything about design and mechanical engineering and like the, the, like the building aspect, the electrical side. And now you're talking about deep learning. How do you become so like, how do you, how do you learn all of these different fields and become knowledgeable enough to teach them? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is a little bit unique to, uh, again, the faculty role I have. So if, if I were doing a traditional, I think faculty trajectory, my success for kind of promotion and, and tenure would have been evaluated on size of grants being brought in and size of lab being grown. And, you know, being successful in that regard effectively requires long-term commitment to research in certain disciplines. So if you're bringing in NIH R01 grants for five plus years and renewing them, you're, you're defining your landscape research-wise for potentially the better part of a decade. Uh, based on that funding, and you have lots of right. students committed to projects in that space. Um, because I've been afforded the ability to be more nimble in what I do, um, and because I, by nature, you know, what gets me uh, most engaged in projects is learning how to do it myself, um, because I don't have the long-term commitments to as many, um, you know, a larger research enterprise, uh, my ability to pivot and be agile in the research space is, is much more um, readily available to me. So, you know, my official title now is I moved from the research professor and then I actually transitioned and promoted up through the professor of the practice, which is typically a, a pure teaching position. Um, Congratulations, I, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, we saw that. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's great because I get to teach, which I love to do. And that's like my, my, one of my primary commitments at the same time, it gives me then a wide open playing field for what I want to do on the research side. And so uh, I'm not looking to run a large enterprise of, of lots and lots of bodies working on one topic, which means there's a lot of inertia to have to pivot that around. And at the same time, engineering by nature is very interdisciplinary. And sure. you know, if, if we stuck to the ways that we were pursuing stuff in the early 2000s now, um, we'd be left in the dust for what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like the potpourri of topics, you know, the mechanics, the electronics, the software, right. that to me naturally falls out from just the pursuit of a solution. Okay. So unlike basic science research where you could really, really focus on the minutia of a, a very detailed topic, I'm very solution-based, right? That's sure. what design is. It's coming up with solutions to problems. Those solutions do not label themselves usually with a single discipline of kind of technical expertise. Right. The the flip side of that is is the more you become a Swiss Army knife, the less you become a deep dive expert in any one given area. So it's a balancing act of kind of knowing enough to not get yourself in trouble. Uh, to be confident <laughs> to apply what you're doing in a meaningful way, but also to know how to synthesize it mm -hmm. with that other interdisciplinary content. So I don't want to be labeled just a software person or just an electronics person or just a mechanics person. Um, but I do want to know that for the level that I kind of bring myself up to in each of those subdisciplines, how well can I also integrate across them? Okay. Um, which to me has been just 
a personal priority of making sure that I'm, I'm comfortable with where that balancing point is. So let me ask like a step further. So when you realized deep learning was a direction that you wanted to go and you needed to go to stay relevant in your field, how did you go about learning that on a, um, on a, on a deeper level? Yes. And, and let me, let me just, you know, right out of the gate say, I am not a deep learning researcher, meaning I am not looking to come up with the next novel deep learning framework. What I am trying to do as an engineer is make sure that we are thoroughly investigating the deep learning frameworks that are out there and figuring out which are readily applicable to our problems. And then also figure out how can they be creatively recast in a way that might be useful for us specifically in kind of our ultrasound elasticity space. Um, You asked before about how research and teaching play off each other. Deep learning is actually a great application for that because, um, for example, in the medical device world, you know, where I'm teaching, deep learning is having a huge impact in terms of where traditional signal processing was used or diagnostic Mm -hmm. classification and things along those lines. And then it's having a a very different type of application in the imaging space. And so actually being able to meld the two worlds um, is great in this regard because you can quickly see by a survey of literature in one space and how a different lab is applying it here or how a manufacturer is using deep learning technologies um, the crosstalk becomes very, very beneficial to you. Um, in terms of the actual learning, I, you know, I, I do it just like I did, as I said, when I was younger, I do it by trying to do something and learning why it won't work. Mm-hmm. So I am not one to start with chapter one of a book or an online course and try to do that from start to end and then go do it as much as I'm trying to figure out, okay, why did someone try doing it this way? How can I pivot it to what I'm doing? Identify the things I don't know, mm-hmm. and then go and have focused, motivated learning of those subtopics to then bring back. And I almost do like a top-down approach in that regard for learning. And it's just like anything else. Reverse engineering is the best way to learn. When I was young, I used to build lawnmowers because my uh, family lived near an all by an old lawn boy warehouse and we never bought a new lawnmower we always just put together (laughs) lawnmowers from scrap parts that were thrown out at the warehouse and like i never learned how to put together a lawnmower what i learned how to take all the parts figure out how they fit together and then when it worked i went back and figured out okay like what is internal combustion what's the difference between a two cycle and a four cycle engine what is a reed valve? Why doesn't a four cycle engine use a reed valve? Like all this different stuff. Whereas if I had just learned it for the sake of learning it, because I suddenly had to build a lawnmower, I wouldn't have had a a framework by which I would know why I cared about certain facts. Mm -hmm. And it's like both of you experienced with kind of what we've done in class with the prototyping skills project is like, I could give you a recipe to follow of how to like do a circuit board layout or how to get the electronics working or how to make an enclosure, right? But it takes you going through everything to figure out, ah, this is why I care about the size of this or the spacing of that or the layout of this sort of thing. And and it's going to resonate with you way longer term when you've experienced through that approach, in my opinion, than if if you just were copying it off a piece of paper and trying to do it. And and so I embrace that in my own life uh, for kind of how I I guide my own learning. That's really cool. 
given the different hats that you wear and how you've been able to experience what it's like to work in the industry, to do academic research, to teach a course focused on engineering design, what advice would you impart to current or incoming engineering students? I know that the decision to pursue one of these different things can be a really tough one. So what are your thoughts and what would you, what advice would you give? Yeah, it's tricky. There's, there's my idealistic advice I'd love to give. And then there's the practical <laughs> advice I have to give. So sure. the first thing I'll go back to is, is that you're the most you will get out of Duke is not going to be just doing what is presented to you in the classroom. Um, meaning if you just, if you, you know, get, perfect grades in all of your classes and limit your scope of what you do academically to just what your coursework and your projects were in your classes, I think you will leave Duke unsatisfied and also potentially hit your senior year a bit confused about what to do next. And, and that, that's, sure. a, that's a very broad stroke statement, but I, I think the best piece of advice I would say is use your classes as an opportunity to like window shop different topic areas. Like you're gonna get a taste mm. of it through what you're doing in your coursework. And I think you need to ask yourself, what exactly would I use this for? Or, oh, they've described some stuff that I'd be excited to take three or four more classes in this to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, really identify what gets that excitement factor for you higher than not. Um, in BME, that's tricky because you take a lot of different types of classes. So you, you lack the ability to do a deep dive in certain areas unless you really go after it class-wise. Um, the other thing, piece of advice I'd say is that the extra experience you get does not have to be in the context of like a long-term formal research project. So a lot of people, you know, do makes research opportunities readily available to you. And people sometimes feel like, okay, I need to get in the lab soon and I need to do it for X semesters. Mm -hmm. And then what can happen is it's really hard to figure out what that best fit lab is for you early on. And I, I think it's a real um, unfortunate circumstance when someone stays in a lab for an extended amount of time out of either obligation or of what they perceive it would look like on paper if they hop around to other things. I mm -hmm. think college is your best time to figure out what interests you. And you know, if you start on early thinking, I wanna work in a more wet lab centric type space, and then you get really jazzed about deep learning or electronics or kind of tangible device development, you should feel like you have the complete latitude to be able to pivot to these other things quickly and not feel like you're already stuck so to speak in that regard. And then it also doesn't need to be formal research. Um, it could be project pursuit. It could be involvement with other clubs that put some of these skills to use. Um, you know, if, if for someone who's looking to do stuff in the software space, I don't necessarily recommend take more advanced coursework in, in software development or computer science or stuff. I'm much more excited about, hey, you know, your generation has the, the availability of a tool like GitHub available with projects you can get involved with. Like, don't let it be your grades that convey what you can do. Let it be your work product, which you can actually put out there and make available for folks to review. Um, expand your sphere beyond just Duke and see what impact you could have on a, on a broader scale. And that was not as available to me back in the 90s um, as it is now. It's, it's mm -hmm. much more ubiquitous 
publicly available for you to get involved with projects, you know, virtually or to, to let the current technologies let you collaborate with people who you can't physically get together with and to, to also just even see what other folks are working on more readily. Um, so my biggest piece of advice would be don't be too tunnel vision just on course success mm. and scope of course work to be setting you up to be satisfied by your senior year or to be the only way to provide clarity of what you actually want to do after your Duke time. Yeah. Well, I think that's fantastic advice. I, I think we could keep this podcast going for literally hours because there's so many things I want to ask. But one question that Rowan and I were talking about that we kind of want to start asking to everyone, this is very random, but are you a coffee or tea drinker? And if so, what is your like go-to drink or order? Oh boy. So I didn't start drinking coffee until my thirties. Okay. I drank wow. no caffeinated beverages through all of med school and grad school and anything like that. Very That's impressive. impressive. Yeah. Yes. Then <laughs> I then I started getting into coffee. Um, so I was a coffee drinker. I do not like tea. I think tea to me tastes like dirty dishwater. Like <laughs> it is not my jam. Um, that being said, when the pandemic hit last spring, I actually weaned myself completely off of coffee. Um, and so I didn't drink any coffee or anything caffeinated for for a while. And actually in the past month, I've slowly reintroduced some coffee, but now feel at least like I dictate the coffee relationship rather than coffee dictating it. Right, right. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> okay, Dr. Bomberry, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. This was an awesome conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure and uh, best of luck with everything. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing your other guests on your podcast in the future and, and hearing what they have to say too. That was a really insightful conversation. In terms of all that Dr. Palmieri is involved with on campus, it seems like he has a really busy and diverse day-to-day. -day. Yeah, for sure. I particularly enjoyed getting to hear about how he got into engineering in the first place and the way he navigated through some of those bigger education career decisions um, in his life. Yeah, and I think what he did say is that he learns these things to solve problems and for applications. Right. So I think that that was definitely spoken like a true engineer. And it's apparent from his design class as well, the one that Becky and I are taking right now, that there doesn't have to be an immediate solution, that we will have to learn new skills to tackle these issues and not to be afraid of that. Absolutely. I, and I completely agree with his whole philosophy of problem-based learning. I definitely learned a ton in his course and other courses as well where the the medium that we were learning the material was through problem solving uh, where we were trying things on our own and failing and then learning from that failure. So I completely agree with that philosophy and I've really enjoyed um, being in his class. Yeah, for any current or incoming engineering students listening, I would definitely recommend reaching out and speaking with Dr. Palmieri sometime. Um, you know, I think it's funny when he was deciding where to go to college, he never sort of considered Duke seriously. And it's funny because now he's kind of known as a Duke lifer. He's been here for so long. He really loves Durham and the Duke community. And I feel like um, he's been such a big part of the engineering curriculum and other aspects that um, it's awesome. Thank you guys for listening. We have more episodes coming your way. We are releasing them every Tuesday. So keep an eye out for that. 
If you want to hear more, you can follow us on our Instagram page at after double underscore office hours. And you can also subscribe on our uh, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at after office hours.